Okay, Jesse, last week was, wow, really something. What's the story this time around? When an aspiring actress and wealthy businessman meet in Los Angeles in the 90s, the chemistry is overwhelming. Marriage and a baby soon follow, as does swinging, bodybuilding, sordid secrets, near-death experiences, a sniper shooting of an elected official, and of course, a marital murder most foul. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jessica. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about swinging fun, coming undone, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Yes, and thank you guys so much for all your signups because Andy got herself some tissues with aloe. Well, I'm still using wet wipes, actually. <laughs> I thought you got yourself the good tissues. I was so I was excited. <laughs> I was going to. I actually like looked at them at Target and still forgot to buy them, so I'm currently using Pampers Pure Aqua. Well, I'll bring you some when I come out next week. Hopefully the it's better by that. that point. <laughs> yeah. But I do sound better. So thank you, you all do, for you your do. support. Speaking of Patreon, we're so excited as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of wonderful patrons. Welcome, bienvenidos, to Laura B and Janine E, Alex B and Amanda D, and Baranda T. Yay! Yay! Welcome everyone. Well, Last week was bananas. This shit is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. <laughs> it was truly bananas. It is, but I, that was actually a very good song for this moment, Andy, because this shit today is also bananas. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. I put two completely that shit. bonkers yeah, cases back to back. Usually I try to, like, stagger these things out, but no, you get a double-decker whammy doodle of batshit bananas cases, guys. Very important question, though. Yes. Are there snakes? <laughs> no, there's no snakes. Just the ones of the trouser variety. Jumping right in, as usual. In May 1994, Landmark Forum, a motivational seminar that advertised helping people achieve their wildest dreams in their personal and professional lives, held a dinner for the very best and brightest leaders and their most faithful followers. 27-year-old Sharla Samsel was a stunningly beautiful aspiring actress turned Landmark Forum leader on the night that she met her future husband, Darren Mack. Oh. Darren was one of the success stories of the program. He was tall, dark, handsome, and also happened to run a multi-million dollar business out of his hometown of Reno, Nevada. 
Sharla and Darren were a match made in landmark forum heaven. They were both the embodiments of the lifestyle. Smart, motivated, and very physically fit. There was an immediate attraction that very quickly led to mind-blowing chemistry in the bedroom and beyond. Darren whined and dined Sharla, flew her around the world, and basically made her feel like the only woman alive. He showed off his softer side as well, introducing her to his beloved kids from his previous marriage. There was no doubt about it, Darren was the catch to end all catches. As was charming, charismatic Sharla, who had a wicked sense of humor and a maternal warmth about her. A whirlwind romance would result in marriage, but what happened later could hardly be called settling down. Strip clubs, secret sexual proclivities, and swinging were all on the menu. But when one member of the couple decided that the lifestyle was no longer for them, this relationship would take a deadly turn. So big thanks to Rachel B., who recommended this bonkers love murder. We've got a lot on the docket today. So beyond everything I just mentioned, there's also an additional sniper shooting. There is just flagrantly terrible behavior. And, you know, Andy, my favorite, an international flight from justice TM. International flight from justice? Like they ran away? Yes, I love it when people run away and then there's like an international manhunt. It's so exciting. Carmen Sandiego vibes. It is giving me major Carmen Sandiego vibes. No wonder I have like such a lady boner for it. Yeah, makes sense. I could see you totally having a crush on Carmen Sandiego. Uh, she was my life. I told you I named my first cat Rockapella. Rocky for short, but his full name was Rockapella. Wow. <laughs> my first hamster was named April O'Neil. <laughs> and then she died, so we got an April O'Neil too. Oh, no. My primary source today is a John Glatt book whose name I will reveal at the end as to not give too much away. And I also watched an episode of American Monster on Investigation Discovery. And Andy, I think you've seen this one, but it's the show where they show the real home movies about the people that are involved in the case. Oh, I don't think I've seen that. Okay. Well, it's very chilling because you get to see the actual perpetrators like with their families, like being the neighborhood friendly person. It's very, very weird to see them in that context. And it's a lot more powerful than the run of the mill show that has a reenactment on investigation discovery. So the episode that I watched was season one, episode six called Right Before Your Eyes. So before that kismet evening in LA in 1994, both Charlotte and Darren had had meaningful relationships and their own ups and downs in life. So let's rewind and talk about the doomed couple prior to meeting each other. Wait, they're doomed? <laughs> if they're on our show, survey says. Ding, ding, ding. 99%. Yes. <laughs> Darren Roy Mack was born on January 31st, 1961, the privileged eldest son of two boys born to Dennis and Joan Mack in Reno, Nevada. In the 1950s, Dennis and Joan had opened Palace Jewelry and Loan, which became a very successful pawn operation. So Reno was then known, especially in, I think, the 40s, the 50s, as the divorce capital of the world, because at the time it was one of the only places in the country where you could get a relatively quick divorce. So that and then becoming renowned for basically being like kind of like a mini Vegas, like lots of gambling 
between those two things, divorces and lots and lots of gambling, you can imagine how a pawn operation would do very well. Yeah. People getting rid of their rings. People are selling stuff when they lose their shirts in the casinos. So they were very, very smart. In fact, Joan and Dennis had sold their, or I think they started with their wedding presents to fund the business. They were like, we want a successful business more than anything else. And they were smart in business in general because as soon as they started making money, they started investing in real estate all over the West Coast. So by the time Darren was a very little boy, the family was already worth millions. Darren was a popular jock in high school who was known as a ladies' man. He was also known to run with, I mean, the description John Glatt gave them, and he's Australian, was kind of like, oh, this, I can't do an Australian accent, but like this mischievous group of boys that was always in trouble, but they always managed to get out of trouble. And really, they just sounded like a bunch of assholes. Okay. (laughs) It kind of sounded like, by his description, That he was, like, one of the preppy jerks, like, in a 1980s movie, like, Revenge of the Nerds or something, where there was, like, these super hot, super wealthy, super athletically inclined dudes who were, like, running in a pack and, like, no one could tell them no, essentially. Yeah. They're annoying. Yeah. So it kind of sounded like maybe Darren was among this group. But he was extremely popular, and everyone said that he had a different girlfriend, like, every week. And there was no shortage of girls that were interested in him. Darren did score a baseball scholarship to University of Nevada, but he dropped out after a career-ending sports injury. His mother seemed like, or at least it was reported in the John Glatt book, especially always spoiled him. In college and then after, Darren always wore expensive designer-like clothes, and he drove a fancy sports car. His mother would contend later on, though, that Darren had always worked very hard for what he was given or earned. At the age of 21, Darren returned home, he dropped out of college, to take over running Palace Jewelry and Loan. So essentially his parents were ready to mostly retire. They wanted to move to Palm Springs and do some golfing and enjoy their later years. So he was taking over operations at that very young age. And on the first day of being the boss, Darren called all of the employees into the office one by one and told them that his father was no longer in charge. And now that he was the manager and CEO, he was going to fire them. But then get this, this was the shtick. As they were dejectedly walking out the door, he'd stop them and offer to rehire them on his own accord. Now, his cousin, Corey Schmidt, who was his right-hand man, said, quote, it was a great move so that they would understand that it was no longer his father running things. Was he paying them the same amount? Yeah, I think so. That's like such a power move. That's exactly what I, I said. I was like, instead of feeling like they were in capable hands and it was being handed down to the next generation, it felt like, okay, now I know that this business is being run by an entitled shit with a power complex. There's, I think it's Horrible Bosses. Did you ever see that movie where like, yes, is it Colin Farrell is like the son of this like older man who's retiring and it's Jason Sudeikis's. I would like to return to that movie maybe when we're together because I remember it being hilarious. It's so funny. And Jennifer Aniston is the dentist. Oh my God, yeah. so... The, like, sexual harassment dentist. Yes. But it's, like, the same thing. His dad's about to retire, and he, like, is just firing people left and right. Like, I think he fired, like, a pregnant woman 
who was like about to like give birth, you know, and it's just I feel like that's such a possibility when it's a family business, like this reign of terror is about to come in and just like destroy everything. I feel like the better way to prove that it's your business now and you're going to run it how you want is to treat people well, to build personal relationships with them, to promote the people that deserve it and to weed out anyone who's not working well in a respectful way. Yeah, not ignite fear. It's not to do this like weird, sticky move. Well, Dennis and Joan... Like I said, they were mostly in Palm Springs at this point, but Dennis regularly flew his private plane back and forth to check on the store and making sure that his son was doing well, of course. And this was like one of those like small planes that he flew himself. He was a pilot. Oh, no way. Yeah. Palm Springs has an airport. I wonder if he flew out of there. Yep. That would make sense. So he was flying himself. And on this one occasion, apparently... Joan and her parents decided to drive and he decided to fly so he could get up there a little faster. And unfortunately, that tragic day, while he was landing, Dennis's plane got caught in the jet wash of a commercial jet and crashed. What? What is that? I guess turbulence. It's the turbulence wake. Crazy. And he immediately crashed and died upon impact. No, that's so sad. Yeah, Darren was only 24 years old at the time, and now he was officially the president of the family's multi-million dollar business. He and Joan at this point each had a 50% stake in the company. Wow. And the other son didn't have anything? So the other son is named Landon. He's the younger. And it feels like there was some separation of Landon from the family early on, but then he was brought back into the fold. And actually, we'll talk about this a little bit later because Sharla was part of helping the family mend fences. But at this point, at least, as far as I know, it was 50-50 with his mother. Seeking guidance after grief, of course, and his new immense responsibilities, Darren began attending landmark education seminars. He soon also made all of his employees go through the same landmark training. And within a couple of years, he became a very well-respected leader in the organization. So I was like... I don't know what this is. And it's the type of thing where you Google it and (laughs) the website doesn't really tell you anything. Yeah, I've heard about Landmark. Have you? So, okay. So it's, it says that it's essentially some sort of motivational seminar program. Their website says the Landmark Forum offers a practical methodology for producing breakthroughs in people's lives, achievements that are extraordinary outside of what's predictable. But yeah, like Andy, you said you've heard of it. It only takes a quick Google search to see that many people, including former members, say that Landmark is a cult. Yeah, so this is sketchy. This is super duper sketch. So that wasn't the only major change in Darren's young life. Only a few weeks after his father passed away, Darren met 18-year-old Debbie Ashlock, a recent graduate of Reno High School. Within months of meeting, which meant within only months of his father's untimely death, they were engaged and they got married in June of 1986. Yikes. I know. It's just too soon after that type of grief. Also, obviously, Debbie's very young. Very young. Yes. Two years into their marriage, they welcomed son Jory in 1988, and then they also had a baby girl in 1990. In the book, they call her Elise. And then in a different article that I read, they called her Jacqueline or Jacqueline. 
So I don't know really what she's called. But suffice to say, they had another beautiful baby girl in 1990. Yeah, so they're together for four years already. Oh, yeah. But the couple did not last much longer after that. Yeah, two kids and being young and... But, I mean, it seems like two kids and being together that long, that was longer than I anticipated you saying. We don't know exactly what went wrong in this relationship other than that they separated one year after their daughter was born and there were reports of infidelity on both sides. Oh. Yes. And the divorce became extremely contentious. In court records, Darren claimed that Debbie had been having an affair with her psychology professor at the community college she was attending. Oh. Uh-huh. Not for teacher. It's trouble. But she was taking psychology courses? That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that she continued her education, obviously, but that's not a way to get extra credit there, my dear. Well, the divorce battle went on for years. Debbie reportedly spent $250,000 on legal fees just responding to Darren. How is that possible? He's litigious. Let's just say that. He, like, gets a little obsessed. I mean, it took many years to resolve, but I don't know exactly what the breakdown Literally the price of a house in some parts of the country. Of course. And also, I don't know if that was adjusted for inflation. I just continued writing down what was reported. So, I mean, it could be much more than that, given inflation. Crazy. When Darren wasn't legally harassing Debbie, he was flying around the world to lead landmark forum seminars. In 1994, he was 33 years old, recently officially divorced, because it took that long for them to finalize their divorce. And he had told friends that he wanted to meet someone and get remarried within a year. So interesting for a 33-year-old male to say that. Well, I found a conversation. There was like a message board for people who had gotten out of Landmark Forum and they called themselves or the people that were in it leckies. And they were saying that there was a lot of language that was representative of what they teach you at Landmark Forum, which is that you have to, you know, visualize these goals and make these like declarations about how you're going to achieve them. And so one of the things that he really wanted, and I do think that this was because Debbie was moving forward with her relationship with the psychology professor. Okay. And did she have custody of the kids too? They were sharing custody at this point, but it will get contentious later as we go along chronologically. So I don't know how much that motivated him, but he had a strong in- inclination to I don't know if it was like outwardly win or he really did want a serious partner and somebody to be another mother to his children, potentially. So it was in May of 1994 in L.A. when he met a beautiful brunette named Sharla that he believed he may have just found that woman. So Sharla was born in August of 1966. She's about five and a half years younger than her wealthy new beau. Charlotte's mother, Surya, had been only 20 years old when Charlotte was born, and Charlotte's parents divorced when Charlotte was three years old. So Surya mostly raised her as a young single mother for the majority of Charlotte's youth. It sounded like her father was semi-involved in her life. It wasn't like he just disappeared, but they never were geographically in the same exact space or the same town, it sounded like, so it wasn't like she could see him routinely. And it sounded like they moved around quite a bit. There wasn't a lot of stability in Charla's youth. Saria remarried and gave birth to Charla's half-brother, but they ended up divorcing shortly after, I believe his name was Christopher, was born. 
So the family of three lived in L.A. during Charlotte's teen years, and this is where she caught the acting bug. Oh. Yeah, so she was inspired when they lived in L.A., uh, but then she was about, like, 15 or 16. They moved to Reno, where Charlotte attended high school. And very weirdly, Charlotte was in the same high school class as Debbie, Darren's first wife. Whoa. Yep. And not only that, they had the same exact birthday. Her and Debbie? Yep. That's weird. And people said that they physically resembled each other, that both Debbie and Sharla were really beautiful brunettes. So strange. He has certainly a type. So she didn't end up actually graduating from Reno High School, though, and being around Debbie for long, because I guess her mother felt like she was getting in with the wrong crowd in Reno and sent her to Montana to live with her father where she graduated eventually from Big Sky High School, where she had been a cheerleader and she had starred in school plays. So after she graduated, her parents wanted her to go to college, and she said, no, I'd rather move to L.A. and try to make it as an actress. Okay. Which, at the time, her mother and her brother were living in L.A., so she could at least live with them while she was doing this. Clutch. Awesome. Yep. So she was... Taking, of course, all of the acting and singing and dancing lessons that she could and beaten feet to all these additions, but she wasn't getting a lot of roles. So she had to, as so many creative professionals do, also wait tables. So it was while she was waiting tables, Andy, that Sharla served movie star and former governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, and the two hit it off. Shut your mouth. They dated casually for two years. Was this before he got married? It sounds like it's kind of like when he got married. So she graduated high school in 1984, and he got married to Maria Shriver in 1986. So, yeah, there was some overlap there. So apparently, Charlotte did know what she was getting into, and she was very clearly the other woman or Many of other women. Yeah, because we know that the maid was another woman, too. Uh-huh. Well, on their first date, he had told her that he was, quote, European and people in Europe have a much more relaxed attitude about having mistresses. Oh, is Maria Shriver European as well? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I don't think she opted in to this situation. I feel like most women in Europe don't opt in. I don't know. I mean, I feel like some people are just like, oh, it doesn't matter as long as, like, he comes home to me. I mean, depending on their family situation, because they're like, oh, I saw this happen with my parents and they were fine. So it's okay if it happens with us. I'm just wondering what it's like if the shoe's on the other foot. Are they then the guys cool with it? Does, like, everyone just have mistresses and misters? I don't know. I don't know either. But I don't think Maria Shriver had a mister. I definitely do not think Maria Shriver had a mister, the poor thing. She definitely didn't get knocked up by someone else and have another person's baby. No. No, she so did not. So there's that. Yeah. Well, the affair came to an end not because of Arnold's marriage, but because Charla eventually asked him to help her get a part in a movie. And he was like, I can't date you anymore. He just stopped returning her calls. Fully canceled, ghosted her. <laughs> he just ghosted her. He's like, it's fine that I cheat on my wife with you, but do not ask for a role in any of my movies. 
Now, this is all coming from Sharla and people she spoke to and her mother, of course. Like, I don't want to get in any trouble with the, the Schwarzeneggers. I don't want to get in trouble with him, too. I really like him. He, like, feeds his donkeys at his kitchen table these days. So I'm, like, not mad at him. Seems like he's very peacefully living out his retirement. So I don't want to disturb him. The amount him. of times that Arnold Schwarzenegger has come up on the show, it's at least two. Do you remember the other one? <laughs> was it a bodybuilding episode? Yes. Okay. I just think that Arnold Schwarzenegger coming up on our show when he's never, to our knowledge, been involved in a murder is two times too many. I mean, Nick Cage comes up multiple times and he's never been involved in a murder. Yeah. Well, that you know of. <laughs> Don't put that on Nick But Cage. also because you love Nick Cage, neither of us really have a dog in the fight with Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> or a donkey in the I, fight, rather. I like him. Okay, okay, now I know. But I'm not, like, going to request a pillow that's made of sequins of him, (laughs) Amanda. Yeah, don't. We do not need an Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) pillow, guys. Just Nick Cage for us. Yeah, the bodybuilding episode, do you remember that? Yeah. When he said that pumping iron was, like, coming. Yeah, it's also in his documentary that I've watched. (laughs) Yes, yes. So good. So this documentary is amazing. (laughs) I know. I should watch that. I think it's called Pumping Iron. Yeah, I watched it. Like, I watched clips of it on YouTube, and that was quite enough for me. Um, No, you need the full 90 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I guess that was a long, uh, that was an Arnold Schwarzenegger sized digression. She did manage to score a couple roles. She got a cameo in Diane Keaton's. 1987 documentary about heaven. I guess her and her mother were on it talking about what they believed happened when you die and going to heaven. And then she had a small, it was supposed to be speaking role in the early 90s Drew Barrymore thriller Poison Ivy. No. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not going to speak badly about Charlotte's acting talent. But she was cut from the film because apparently she got so nervous around what she was supposed to do. She was supposed to be like an orderly in the hospital and deliver a few lines. And they had to cut it because she was like stammering or something. So you're meaning to tell me that I have more IMDb credits than Sharla? You might indeed. But you don't have your SAG card, do you? Um, No. She got her SAG card for that. So she was. She wins. Yeah, she did. So even though she got cut, she still got her credits. So she was credentialed. But, of course, that was a huge disappointment. That was a situation where you think you're in a movie and you think you have lines and then you go to watch it and you are basically cut out. So that was a huge bummer. So she was getting very disillusioned with Hollywood and the film industry by this point. So she had begun attending these landmark seminars where she quickly worked her way up the ranks to become a leader, and she started hosting her own seminars. So one of these seminars is videotaped, and it's featured on American Monster, that episode that I talked about. And it's very weird because when I watched it before looking up what Landmark Forum was about, I thought it was a weight loss group. A Gwen Shamblin vibe. Yeah, because she was just talking about how you have to calculate your carbs and watch your calories and you should only eat this much and you have to do physical exercise every single day. And I was like, what does this have to do with becoming like your best personal and professional health? Control from the leaders of any way, whether it's weight, monetary, religious, whatever it is, it's some form of control always. 
Yeah. And the message that you can't be successful or achieve if you're not this physical ideal that they apparently had. So those were like basically the courses she was teaching. I don't know if she did any other seminars, but the one they showed on the show was just that. It was very weird. So she was 27 years old at this time. And that was when she met Darren Mack at this dinner. And so she has been now in Hollywood for almost a decade. She has not been able to find success. She was the side piece of this very successful man who ghosted her, it sounds like. And I do think she enjoyed her work at Landmark Forum, but she was getting to a point in her life where she was looking for something more meaningful and forever. Yeah, something solid. And so when Darren came into her life, he really did seem like the answer to all of her prayers. He was a guy who was good looking. He already had millions of dollars at the age of 33. He was interesting. He believed in the same landmarkian principles that she did. I mean, they're following the same course. They're both considered higher ups, I believe, at that point. He was very serious about getting married and he made that clear to her. And apparently very early on, he introduced her to his children who were four and six at the time, which I think are exceptionally cute ages. Exceptionally cute ages. Exceptionally cute ages. They're just inquisitive and sweet and they're still like a little cuddly and roly-poly and adorable. So I don't know. It just seemed like this guy was the whole package and he took her on these trips like all over the world. They went to Europe and the Caribbean and he took her to like really nice restaurants and he treated her with respect. And basically she was pretty hooked right away. So when his ex Debbie remarried what it sounds like the professor, because they called him professor. I'm, I'm guessing she didn't have two professors. In July of 1994, only a couple months after their divorce had been finalized and he had also started dating Sharla, she ended up standing by him as Darren went to war for custody of the kids with Debbie. Yeah. So essentially, I guess like Debbie said when she settled with her husband that she wanted more full custody. It wasn't like you can never see them, but like they permanently live with me and you see them on weekends more situation because right now they had 50-50. And he was like, I'm going to fight you tooth and nail for that. And what I believe Charlotte saw was a man that was absolutely dedicated to his children and believed goodness knows whatever Darren was saying about his ex, that she was a cheater, that, you know, X, Y, and Z, she had this deficiency, I'm sure. So she was totally in his thrall and in his side. I mean, she proved pretty early that she was ride or die with him. In early 1995, Darren proposed to Sharla, but after the initial celebration, there was a lot of conflict about this because Darren wanted Sharla to sign a prenup. Oh, so the prenup, from my understanding, would prevent Sharla from having any stake in Palace at all, which I do understand. But it seemed like he was cutting her out of like a lot of things, jointly owned things like houses and stuff and like future business enterprises. I can understand wanting to protect like a family business, something that has been in your family for generations and saying, 
God forbid something bad happens, we should prevent this. And, you know, make sure you get an attorney too and make sure your interests are protected and put in provisions for yourself. A prenup is not necessarily a red flag. No, I don't think so at all. I think it's responsible. Yeah. So Sharla, though, did not see it that way. She thought it was a huge red flag, like he thought they were going to get divorced or he didn't trust her or something. So they were fighting day and night about this until finally Darren very theatrically ripped up the prenup in front of her and said, fine, no prenup. Let's just get married. I love you that much. Okay. Well, that's an act of love. Yeah. So the couple did end up getting married in May of 1995, just about a year since they had met. Unfortunately, matrimony did nothing to calm the passionate pair, and they continued to fight all the time, including on their honeymoon. Not a good sign. Not a good sign. I mean, that's a red flag if you are fighting at your wedding or on your honeymoon. And it sounds like they just had this very high octane toxic relationship. Like the sex was extreme and really satisfying, but so was all of the emotion and all of the fighting. By everyone's account, the Max first year of marriage was riddled by increasingly violent arguments with Sharla being just as much at fault as Darren. In John Glatt's book, friends and family reveal a time that apparently they chased each other around a department store screaming, and Darren's daughter recalls that Sharla slapped her father full on the face in an airport once. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard because a lot of the reports about Sharla being abusive come from his family and people that like very much support him, like a female cousin who also worked for them at Palace is on American Monster talking about how essentially Sharla gave as good as she got and that they were fighting constantly. So it sounds like it was just incredibly toxic. And there's definitely occasions that we'll talk about coming up that there was evidence that Darren was physically abusive with Sharla as well. Okay. So obviously they're having a difficult time, but there was a couple areas in which they were completely united. And when they were united and they were on the same team, they worked unbelievably well. And that was something that was true when they had a common enemy, which was early on in their relationship, Debbie, the first wife. So Debbie's now trying to get full custody of the kids. And not only did Debbie report believing that Sharla was stalking her to get ammunition to use in the court case, which we don't know about if that was true and or if Darren asked her to do it, but Sharla herself told her good friend, Laura Cunningham, that they had gone to Vegas and Darren had been a little oblique about this meeting that he was having with this guy at a bar and they were talking about rates and different things. And later she told Laura that essentially what she believed, and I don't know if she had confirmed this with Darren, was that Darren was meeting with a hitman to talk about what it would cost to get rid of Debbie. Oh, wow. That's a huge red flag if your future husband is talking about bumping off his first wife. I'd say. Who looks exactly like you and is the same age as you and... So the only other thing that the Max seemed to really truly enjoy together was sex. They were regulars at various Reno area strip clubs. They had apparently a vast collection of porn and even dabbled in filming and taking photos of their own sexcapades. 
One of Charla's friends said the following on CBS's 48 Hours. Charla was a very sexual person. She did not have sexual inhibitions, and that was something she shared with her husband. Still, there were times that Charla felt early on in their marriage that Darren was immature and perhaps a little too sexually obsessed. And according to some of her closest friends, she began to question if she had made the right decision in marrying him. Well, that line of thinking went out the window when Charlotte discovered that she was unexpectedly pregnant. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So Charlotte had had a difficult childhood with her divorced parents, and she resolved to fix her marital issues because she didn't want her child to have the same experience that she had had growing up. To her surprise, Darren seemed very willing and ready to recommit to the marriage and make the necessary changes to try to have a harmonious marriage. And he was really excited about them having a baby and making these changes that he needed to make. That was until Sharla was eight and a half months pregnant and Darren issued a shocking ultimatum. Darren told Sharla, again, just envision this, eight and a half months pregnant. Ankles are so swollen. Just everything's big. Everything's round. Everything's uncomfortable. He told her that he wanted to try swinging and that he could no longer live without a marriage that did not have sexual freedom. He said, look, I love you. I want that marriage with you. I want to have this like swinging lifestyle with you. You're my number one baby. You know, after the baby comes, of course. But if you don't want that, if you don't want to swing and you don't want to have that lifestyle, then I need to know that right away so that we can start working on the divorce and I can find somebody who does want that lifestyle with me. So he's giving her an ultimatum. He's giving her an ultimatum. He's saying, you're going to start swinging with me after this baby is born or we're done. Yep. So she was incredibly trapped. This is a woman who did not have a college education, had not had a very serious career path or a lot of, had garnered a lot of skills. She was an aspiring actress who had done some landmark forums. She is eight and a half months pregnant. He had encouraged her to not even work at Palace, which wouldn't have mattered anyways, because it was his business, to be able to be on call, essentially, to take care of his children and take care of him. So she is absolutely trapped. She thought she was going to be a stay-at-home mom. But it gets, like, even worse is that he was like, oh, and, you know, we're going to buy this brand new home. Like, they had been talking about all this stuff. Like, she was excited about this fancy new 5,700-square-foot mansion that they were going to move into that was located on these six beautiful acres. There was a private stream. I mean, they had all of these plans. And he got her in just the right position where she had nowhere to go to say yes to this. And she was like a sexually adventurous person. Like it wasn't like out of the blue totally. It wasn't like something like so crazy and bizarre. It's just not. But when you're eight and a half months pregnant, though, that is fucked up. Even if you're a pretty sex positive person, that is a crazy thing. And you know what I find the most problematic is the ultimatum. There should be like nothing in like other than like abuse that you go into a marriage, especially if you didn't set up these conditions going into the marriage. Being like, if you don't do this, I'm divorcing yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Without conversation, without counseling, without working on things. That's crazy to me and very disrespectful. It's a power play, just like we've seen from him. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah. So she very begrudgingly agrees to this. 
also, I mean, she's focused on getting through her pregnancy and having her baby. So it's like, sure, whatever, Darren. We'll see what happens afterwards. I mean, that's all you can think about at eight and a half months. It's like, when will this thing come out of me? You're not thinking about anything going (laughs) in. You're only thinking about things coming out. (laughs) It's like, do not talk to me about sex right now unless you're like going to help me go into labor. So she says yes to this. And they were, of course, purchasing this home. So she was signing a lot of papers. And this is also like, peaks come back. He slipped a post-nuptial agreement into these papers that she for was the signing house. for other things. Yeah, for I believe the house. They just said other things that she had to sign these papers for. So shady. So shady. Did not tell her. Her real signature was on it. And it was with basically the same conditions of the prenup that she had refused to sign earlier. Wow. So super duper shady. Yeah. Well, the Max moved into their sprawling new home only days before their daughter Erica was born on December 22nd, 1997. Which, by the way, the reason we know that they have a very vast porn collection is because apparently they hired like these local teenagers to move their stuff. And these guys were like losing their minds about the boxes and boxes and boxes of pornography they had to move. I mean, it's so crazy how it all used to be on VHS. <laughs> you know, like you can't hide that it shit. In the 90s, you're right. Yeah, like it was all VHS. You had like secret trunks and stuff of it, you know, like. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I personally think that you should just move your own porn. No, but if you're wealthy, like, no, someone else is moving my porn. <laughs> also, who cares? It's fucking porn. Like, now you can access it anywhere. I don't know. Call me old-fashioned, but I'd move my own own porn VHS tapes. That is an old-fashioned mentality, Jessica. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, they soon upgraded this property with a pool and a fully loaded gym that had all of the equipment, like all of the weight equipment, all of the cardio machines. It had floor-to-ceiling mirrors, which was all the better to get into shape for the Mac's first swinging trip, which occurred in the spring of 1998 when baby Erica was only a few months old. Also, like, still don't want anything going inside of me. No, I mean, you've got like, you still got that line going up your belly. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I think that Charlotte was very much game. I got to give her some credit for this no, one. No, seriously. Like, uh, no. I just wrote, nope, nope, nope. No. <laughs> In my notes. <laughs> no. I mean, there's like so many reasons that it's a no, too. Which, by the way, guys, if you had like a swinging sex life, only a couple months after having your baby, Andy and I, props, props, like hats off to you. I mean, we are not shaming this at all. We are impressed. Yeah, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. Like Wayne's World, we're not worthy. Like, congratulations to you and your partner. Well done. Well done. I'm just saying, personally, (laughs) it was not. On behalf of both of us. It was not a sexy time in my life. No, I was still wearing, like, the bamboo, like, diaper underwear. (laughs) So, no. So, So anyway, this jaunt took them to Montego Bay in Jamaica to... Yep, it was a swingers resort called The Hedonism 2. Two? Yeah, I don't know what happened to Hedonism 1. <laughs> so it was there that they started swinging for the first time, and it was also the first time that they tried ecstasy. That will help. 
That would definitely <laughs> take the edge off for sure. So ecstasy became a favorite of Darren's and he would go on to do the drug more than 100 times reportedly. That's not helpful for your brain. No, no, it is not. It like literally burns a hole in your brain. So they also met a charming French executive named Olivier, who was there with his wife and his live-in girlfriend. Oh, yeah. And they were still at the Swingers Resort looking for more people. So that's pretty wild. So Darren decided that Olivier was basically a boss and that he wanted to have a life like Olivier. And so they stayed in touch and Olivier became like somewhat of a hero slash mentor to Darren. I don't think that it was totally reciprocated that like he didn't also look up to Darren, I'm pretty sure. But like he was a proud ambassador of the lifestyle, let's say. He also was like, that's what we should do. And, you know, there's nothing more that a postpartum mother wants to hear than that her husband wants to have sexual sister wives. Although, honestly, I might have considered it for extra help with the baby. (laughs) Oh, is there another adult in my house that I can take the baby? Okay. So by this point, whether Sharla was enjoying herself or not, she was trapped. Because... Darren had invited her mother to live in their guest house and she had a um, a massage therapy business. And so she was living in their guest house and running her business out of their guest house at this point. Okay. And then he had invited Sharla's father to come to Reno and run their new profitable eBay business. So he ran like the eBay wing of the business. Okay. So that means that she's a new mother. With no income, both of her parents dependent on Darren for either their living situation or their livelihood or both in Soraya's case. And then I don't know when he dropped the bomb that she had also signed a postnuptial agreement. So now she's thinking, I'm not going to, even if I do leave, what am I going to get from this guy? I mean, she didn't really have a choice. Now, there's reports that go back and forth about how Sharla felt about their sex life. Some people are like, oh, she was like totally into it for sure. And then other people say maybe she was happy with it at some point, but things did change. As the swinging and swapping and recreational drug use continued, Darren also got very interested in working out. He wanted to be a specimen of a man. Maybe he was a little jealous that Sharla had been with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, also, I don't know. I mean, spending like a long weekend at the hedonism too, I feel like I'd be like, okay, diet time. (laughs) Nothing makes you want to get more in shape than being naked in front of strangers. Yeah. You know, like I'd be like, (laughs) oh, okay. Especially if like his role model, Olivier, was like ripped too. I could see that being like the motivation as well. Yeah. And he had always been relatively active in shape, but like he got full on into bodybuilding, like very much into it. And he started adding steroids to his cocktail of substances. I don't know if that combines with ecstasy well. No, it doesn't seem like a great idea. He also got a fitness coach and Darren got so ripped that he even finished fifth in the Mr. Reno lightweight bodybuilding competition in May of 2002. Oh, I mean, he's oiled up. He's slick. He was also so proud of himself that he commissioned a life-size photo of himself 
flexing his muscles from this competition. Like a foam core thing? Like- it was like a poster board, from my understanding. And he placed it above, they said it was a urinal. I mean, maybe he had a urinal in his master bathroom. So just imagine a urinal or a toilet or something. In the master bathroom. So he could look at himself every day, first thing in the morning when he went to make his like morning wee. Um, first thing in the morning. Who needs coffee, Andy, when you can just gaze upon your own glistening muscles? Nothing like getting off on yourself first thing in the morning. <laughs> it's the real. Nothing more satisfying than that first pee. But when you pair it with checking yourself out, I mean, you really got a winner. Oh, Wow. Yeah. So he really didn't actually drink that much. And that might have had something to do with like his bodybuilding and being very conscious of what was going into his bodies and calories and et cetera, et cetera. So to get loose for swinging, he would take GHB, the date rape drug. He would take it himself. Yeah, that tracks. Yep. And he would also take ecstasy. With GHB? I don't know if he was alternating them, but those were two of the drugs he used during these experiences. He was also taking steroids. What's the point of like swinging if you're taking GHB2? You don't remember anything. I truly do not know. I don't know if there's like some dose in which it's It like fun. blurs the like memory. <laughs> Lines of- just enough. Yeah. I can't tell you. I do not know. But this cocktail of all these drugs on top of the steroids began to affect his sexual performance. So he also started having to take Viagra. Yeah, you think? It's just, this is a lot of drugs. Like, let's, like, reel it back. Like, let's peel away the layers of the onion that you're adding on of all. It's like the onion and then the bloomin'. Let's take the bloomin' away and look at maybe we should, like, reevaluate everything. Okay, so, yeah, you got to peel the bloomin' off the onion because this is getting crazy. Actually, nothing's blooming. (laughs) Nothing's blooming. (laughs) So. Obviously, this is not good for his body, for his brain, for his emotions. I mean, he was already a kind of intense, aggressive dude. You do not want to put steroids on that type of energy. So it did seem like Darren was maybe due for a reckoning. Like usually when people are in these situations, something happens. They get to some situation where they're like, whoa, I cannot keep living like this. Something has to change. Maybe a cataclysmic event that would force him to take a good hard look at his life choices. Well, that did happen in the summer of 2002 when Darren was struck by a nearly lethal case of spinal meningitis. From what? I have no idea where he contracted this, but if you guys don't know, which I wasn't entirely clear on exactly what spinal meningitis was, It is an occasionally fatal bacterial infection that inflames the membrane covering the brain and spinal cord. And it's very dangerous, very dangerous. So Darren and Sharla had actually been checking out of a Vegas hotel after a swinging trip when Darren started speaking essentially gibberish. Like he was just like kind of, I think when people have strokes or something, all of a sudden they're saying things and like their words are scrambled. And Sharla immediately knew something was wrong. She got him in a taxi right away to the hospital. They put him in a room, but he was like in and out of it kind of. And so she ran out in the hall and she was like, come help my husband right now. And they said that she might have helped save his life because by the time the doctor came in, he had passed out and he was in a coma. Oh my God. 
Yeah. He ended up being in a coma for three days. Oh, my God. Jesse. Yep. And he had to spend the next two weeks in the hospital in Vegas. And then it was like two weeks until he could safely travel. And then he still had to convalesce when he got back home to Reno. In the process of this experience and healing, he lost 30% of his hearing. (gasps) But they considered him lucky that he had survived. I mean, they were like, 30% of your hearing is terrible, but you're alive. That's a miracle given his case. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So when he was finally able to come home, Sharla and his mother, and I think Sharla's mother too, because she was still in the guest house, all took turns taking care of him. And one night, very shortly after this, he told Sharla that the near-death experience had caused him to have an epiphany. Oh. Now, of course, you would assume that the epiphany would be about straightening up his act, not doing drugs, being a better father. Nope. (laughs) That was not the epiphany. The epiphany was that he needed more swinging in his life and that he wanted to be the Hugh Hefner of Reno. Friend Laura Cunningham said, quote, he had this whole fantasy that all of these people were going to live at their house. I mean, he was a real sex addict. He really ratcheted things up. Yeah, so he kind of lost his mind a little bit. Soraya, Charlotte's mother, said on American Monster that he wanted to live like that show, that reality television show, The Girls Next Door. He legitimately wanted to be Hugh Hefner and have multiple women who serviced him and lived in his house. So Sharla was appalled. She absolutely did not want her daughter exposed to this. It was one thing for them to leave her with the grandparents and go take a sexy trip and come back. It's an entirely other kettle of fish to have people going down to Bone Town in your own home. Yeah, no. And living there? Oh, my God. Charlotte's like, okay, I am going to have to draw the line here. They began fighting daily about this. The intensity escalated until Darren reportedly attacked Charlotte in a parking garage, nearly choking her to almost blackout. About this. I think it was one of these situations where it was always about this, but it could spiral out to other things as well. Meanwhile, four-year-old Erica was so distressed that she had to start seeing a child psychologist because her school reported that she was having significant emotional problems and was falling behind, which was not surprising given the emotional state of the household and the constant fighting that was going on. Poor thing. Well, Charlotte officially at this point was like, I'm done with swinging and I desperately want to salvage what is left of my marriage. And there was like a counselor of theirs that said that Charlotte kept trying to put her foot down, but then she would like acquiesce to like a trip or something and be like, well, I know you love it, baby. So like one more time, like, She kept going back and forth. And so I think that he thought he could always push the envelope because she wasn't in the business of giving him ultimatums the same way it seemed like he was giving her ultimatums. And it is very clear if you watch American Monster, they have these Christmas home videos and she seems just a little on edge, especially when in front of their daughter, he gives her this 
bag that's from Victoria's Secret and she like pulls out this like thing that's kind of like a Christmas ornament and her daughter's like, oh, what is it, mommy? You know, and she opens like the ornament and it's like this lacy thong underwear and it's like all of this lingerie, like really lacy, sexy, non-existent, like basically crotchless underwear type stuff. And she's clearly like, <laughs> thanks, honey, because her daughter's like picking up the underwear and being like, ooh, you know, this is not what she wanted. That's something, you know, you do behind closed doors or you give it to them at like a hotel when you're on a trip or something. So this clearly is like, there's this pervasive, inappropriate sexual conversation and innuendo going on at all times, it feels like. So she began to confide in friends finally that this was going on. Some people, some like real insiders knew, but like she began to tell more people that they were swingers. She did not want to be in the lifestyle anymore. She told one friend that the swinging had been going on for three years, which was two years and three months too long for her. She said that was like when they started around that nine month mark was when she was like, okay, we're done, right? And he was like, no. So she told people she wanted out, but she felt very trapped. And to your point, Andy, you kind of hinted at this earlier. There is some speculation that the spinal meningitis affected his brain. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely could. That's happening on top of a lot of drug use as well. So there is a lot of speculation that something was not quite right with Darren's brain or brain chemistry at this point. I mean, the spinal meningitis could have been from drug use too. Is it? Is it possible from drug use? Yeah, it can be from drugs. There are certain antibiotics that can cause it too. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. Well, he was falling behind on child support for his oldest children at this point. He was spending more time getting high and watching porn than like actually going to work. No. Yeah, as a result, they said that people were stealing from him. It wasn't clear whether that was like employees that were like, no one is watching, I might as well steal. Or if it was like people coming in off the street and nobody was watching. Or if it was totally manufactured. Yeah, but the employees said that people were stealing from him because he wasn't there. This wasn't in his head. This was like he was not present and no one was running the ship. And so people were just like, who cares if I come to work? Who cares if I steal something? It doesn't matter. So it just doesn't seem like this was not the same type of guy, obviously, that Charla married that was so motivated in living this proactive, clean, successful life. So the marriage also was deteriorating calamitously at this point. Sharla was witnessed on a cruise that they took, punching Darren in the stomach and screaming, you ruin everything. On Christmas Day, 2003, Darren refused to get out of bed. He wouldn't get out of bed for the entire day. He didn't celebrate the holiday with his family. Oh, my God. Well, it was clear that this marriage was headed for divorce. And Darren finally gave Sharla a proposal about how they could potentially separate because she was scared that he was never going to let her go. And then he was like, you're right. This isn't working out. We want different things. So he's like, here's a great idea. Like, you obviously don't want to swing anymore. That's our biggest issue. Yeah. So how about we don't legally get divorced? We just have a little separation. And over five years, you'll move into an apartment with Erica, our daughter. I'll keep the house. I'm going to move a bunch of sex partners into the house. They won't be around like when Erica comes to visit, but like I'm going to have my swing pad. But you're not going to date anyone and you'll be sexually available to me when I want to sleep with you. 
And then at the end of five years, we'll just recommit to one another after I've had my five years of fun. Sounds great. She was like, uh, yeah, absolutely. No, no, I will not agree to that. That is not an option for me. And she did convince Darren to go see a marital counselor. So on his part, at least he did that much. And the marital counselor told them that the only way to make this fair was to allow Sharla to stay in the home with her daughter and where her mother lived in the guest house, I believe still at the time, and that it would make more sense for Darren to get an apartment himself. Yeah. And this is where everything really started to go to hell. I mean, it's not been great up until this point, but this is the final straw in all of this. So a trigger warning now for domestic violence and financial abuse. I know we've kind of already touched on the domestic violence. Well, the police were called to the home in late November of 2004 after Charlotte called 911 because Darren had struck her in the eye and strangled her outside of the home that they had been previously sharing. Unfortunately, the Reno police determined that it was merely a domestic dispute and took zero action. That Christmas Eve, Darren cut off all of Charlotte's credit cards, and he also closed their joint banking account. She had told him also that she was going out of town for New Year's Eve. When she returned from that trip, she found that Darren had broken into the house, and he had taken over $50,000 worth of things from the home, including all of the gym equipment and various other things that were worth anything in the home. But he also took stuff that were personal and only had nostalgic value. He took things like her wedding dress and family photo albums and scrapbooks she was making for Erica. She was left essentially with an empty house because he took furniture as well. And this was a gigantic empty house that she had absolutely no money to pay for. Without an income, Charla could not even come close to affording the upkeep on a 5,700-square-foot mansion. The house was falling into disrepair as Darren refused to pay for services, utilities, or even the mortgage. Really? Is that legal? It's his house. I mean, it can damage his credit. Running out of options, Charla finally filed for divorce officially in February of 2005, and her lawyer petitioned the court for emergency support from Darren. Darren lawyered up and countered that Charla was a mentally ill, physically abusive alcoholic whom he was scared of. He requested a restraining order against Charla, which Charla responded by saying, no, I want a restraining order Against yeah, you. and don't they have any sort of record of the quote-unquote domestic dispute that they had? Well, there was also witnesses on Darren's side that said that they would testify that she had abused him. Oh, my God. Okay. While Sharla was trying to keep the lights on and feed her child, Darren took his buddies to celebrate his upcoming divorce at the infamous brothel The Moonlight Bunny Ranch, which was featured in HBO's series Cat House. So she has zero money. She has no way to handle this house or the bills or manage to even keep it in a presentable order so that realtors can show it. And he's at the Moonlight Bunny Ranch. Yep. And that wasn't all. Darren started posting on swingers groups, MySpace, Match.com, Cupid.com, 
under the name Too Much Fun. So they have various profiles that he was writing to people, which was saying that he was looking for somebody who was sexually adventurous and fun, and they should only respond if they were ready to have too much fun. Oh, my God. Yeah. So this missing work, it kept going. He was becoming increasingly obsessed with finding new sexual partners, making Charlotte pay and his body, even waking his seven-year-old daughter at the time up in the middle of the night to take her to the gym with him at four in the morning. So Charlotte was saying that's abusive. You cannot make this child go to the gym with you at four in the morning. No. And he was like, she loves it. She loves be, like watching me work out. We have a great time together. I don't think so. On May 27th, 2005, a couple weeks after what would have been the max 10th wedding anniversary, they had their first meeting with family judge Chuck Weller to see if there was any hope of settling this divorce amicably. Spoiler alert. There was not. No, I would, I would have guessed that, yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely not. And Judge Chuck Weller said that on his part, he always met with couples that were coming into his court for divorce first to see if they could just mediate the issues and come to an agreement before they had to go through a whole hearing and trial or whatever it is. Because I think sometimes that works. Like sometimes just having a mediator actually can help people who are relatively civil. It's just the emotions are high, but this obviously is past that. Yes, and he was very even-handed. He was like, she wanted full custody of Erica. And he was saying, you know, I think that the child would benefit from having her father in her life. So we're going to like keep custody 50-50. We're going to set up a system in which, obviously, this is getting contentious, but, like, one of you will drop her off at school and the other one picks her up at school when it's time to switch. So you're never in the same place. You, you don't have to deal with each other. So he was trying to figure things out. But at the same time, Charlotte needed money. Like, I mean, their bills were going unpaid. They were about to turn off the electricity, the heat in where she was living. And so he's like, okay, well, looks like your income Darren's income was $44,000 a month and Charlotte's is zero. <sighs> Guys, I did not even adjust for inflation. So this is like $2,005, $44,000. That's a lot of money. <sighs> that is so much money. Yeah. So at that point, of course, the judge said, you need to immediately start giving her $10,000 a month. And of course, we're going to work out the ultimate settlement and your attorneys are going to argue for all of this. But in the meantime, you have to give her 10 grand a month, which is less than a quarter of what you're making. So he also said that Darren would also have to cover all of the family bills. He said, as long as your child is living in that house, you have to cover the bills. You have to keep the lights on. You have to pay the mortgage. Yeah, regardless of a prenup. Yes. Your child is living there 50% of the time. You have to make sure they're living in a condition that is appropriate for a family to be living in. Well, Darren was irate about this. He didn't want to pay the mortgage or the bills for a house that he wasn't living in, and he didn't want to do anything that would help Charlotte out, and he did not think she was entitled to $10,000 a month. And Darren did not follow Judge Weller's orders and instead joined Nevadans for Equal Parenting and various father's rights groups to begin a campaign against the judge. Whoa. He believed that the judge was persecuting him. He also transferred control of palace jewelry and loan back to his mother 
and claimed that he no longer received proceeds from the company. Instead, he was now considered a sales associate with a salary of $5,000 a month, not the $44,000 he was making before. But they can see right through that, can't they? I don't know. He did this, of course, after moving $280,000, the modern day equivalent is like $430,000, from his personal account into a business account. So he is hiding money left and right, which again, like her lawyer can hire somebody to say, this is bullshit. Also, he's hiding money. So he's obviously hiding these assets. And by the way, this is occurring, I think, in May. In February of that same year, so only a few months earlier, he had applied for a $500,000 line of credit at Wells Fargo, saying that he and Charla's estate was worth more than $12 million. And now he's saying he is practically bankrupt and he only makes $5,000 a month. And he did actually file Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And get this. When the Chapter 7 bankruptcy was filed by his attorneys, he was at a swinging convention in Mexico having a grand old time. I mean, he wasn't the only one, too. His mother started gunning for Charla, too. Joan sued Charla for an expensive diamond ring and Rolex watch that Darren had given her as gifts, claiming that they were property of the palace wow. jewelers. And that she needed to return the rightful property. Wow. Wow. So gifts from your husband that he gave you are now stolen property. Now they're stolen property because he gave them from his own company. That's like a really low blow. I mean, she's got to sell them because he's not giving her, even after these court orders, he's still not giving her any money. It just honestly got scummier and scummier by the week after this. Darren was living the high life. He was, like I said, defying these court orders to pay his destitute wife. Now, this is really sad. By Christmas 2005, the mansion the Max had bought together was in foreclosure and the electricity was turned off. Charla tried to make the holiday merry by pretending to her daughter that they were camping and they slept in sleeping bags in front of the fire for warmth and roasted marshmallows. Meanwhile, Darren was enjoying the holidays by attending a nine-day Utopia group swingers convention in Cabo, where he shared a $260 a night room with one young woman that he had brought on the trip and engaged in public sex by the pool Later on, a bellboy named Jesus Reyes would remember Darren Mack because he, quote, had a different girl on his arm every time I saw him. <sighs> Isn't this insane? You just don't think it could get any worse. And then the elevator just goes a deeper, darker floor. So scary. In early 2006, Darren was hauled back into court in order to actually pay Charla or risk being arrested for contempt of court and serving actual jail time. A settlement was reached that Darren would pay Sharla $480,000 within 48 hours, and then he would pay her $500,000 from his palace pension fund over the next five years. And that was it. That was the whole settlement. Okay. The parents would split school, medical, and other expenses for Erica. But even after Darren agreed to this, he still 
failed to do so. He became obsessed with Judge Weller's wrongdoing. He started posting obsessively on internet forums. He even cornered the governor's wife in a parking lot once and talked to her for two hours trying to get her to appeal to her husband to intervene in his family court case. Oh, my God. And it wasn't just like personal. Like he was trying to make this about the corruption of the family court system and that something had to be done. But it's the bigger issue. He's like taking the bigger issue instead of having it be, it's like the macro issue. Yes. Like he's like, it's not just about me. This is about an experience that so many people are going through. Yeah. Darren paid private eyes to spy on Sharla, going so far as to hire one to match with her on Match.com and start dating her. Oh, it's so creepy. Whoa. Yeah, the cringe level is high. One of her friends said that she was really smart, though, and she was also good at being a little bit of a private eye herself, and she sniffed that one out right away, and he got no information, that private eye. I mean, this gets really insane. Darren found Judge Weller's address, and he put an ad in a paper advertising that there was a very valuable Harley-Davidson motorcycle going up for auction for pretty cheap at Judge Weller's address so that bikers were just showing up at their home where he had children and his wife at all hours of the day yeah. asking about the Harley. Darren tried to get press to pay attention to his father's rights slash corruption of the Reno family court case. But of course, no one was interested in his crackpotness except for one guy named William Wagoner who was a radical libertarian and had a web series that I'm sure very few people listen to. And he agreed to have Darren on the show. And Darren said some of the most insane stuff I've ever heard in my life. These are legit quotes from his time on this web TV show. That's what they called it in the book, a web TV show. Web TV show. <laughs> Internet TV show. So according to John Glatt's book, he claimed that at the January 9th settlement conference, Judge Weller had used intimidation and extortion, threatening to put him in jail if he didn't pay one and a half times his income for spousal support. That is the kind of justice that I had to face in front of Judge Weller, Darren declared. Actually, it doesn't even come up in America for me. For me, this is probably what people felt in Nazi Germany. <gasps> no! Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he did. Where things started to slide very subtly, and then all of a sudden, you find yourself being whisked away to concentration camps. That is the family court system. And my experience of it under Judge Weller, it reminds me so much more about what I studied in school about Nazi Germany. That's not all, Andy. He went on to say, my ultimate point of what I'm trying to get across is that it's time to take a stand. It's time to not let this tyranny go under wraps and keep it quiet. Somebody has to stand up. If our forefathers in 1776 stood by and just kept quiet and hoped maybe England would go away, we'd be sipping tea right now. Sir, I'm sipping some tea right now. Wow. So he compared himself to somebody experiencing the Holocaust and a patriot during the Revolutionary War in one interview. I'm surprised we didn't also get Gandhi in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, 
Yes. Well, so they wrapped up the interview, but the camera was still rolling. And the camera caught a conversation between this host and Darren Mack while he was kind of like taking off his microphone and everything. And Mack conversationally told the host that he believed that family judges had far too much power, calling the system legalized mafia. And this host, William Wagoner, said, I agree. The bottom line is it's a criminal enterprise to rape, pillage, and plunder. You're actually better off to murder your spouse and then plead insanity and be out in seven years. You'll have your kids. You'll have what you want. Shut the fuck up. They have a clip of this on the American Monster 2 show. And he just like, you see him kind of like. The light bulb. Yeah. He just, he doesn't say anything, but he's just nodding. He's just nodding his head. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. And it was like right there behind his eyes. Whoa. I mean, the things he said were so ridiculous that they were laughable and we can make fun of that all day. But then with the, how that ended, it is. Yep, yep, yep terrifying yeah which is i think the problem with some of some of these people that do such outlandish things it gets to a point where you're like oh it's so funny to laugh at them because it's so outrageous and what they're saying is so ridiculous and then before you realize it they're dangerous and you didn't see it coming because you thought what they were saying was laughable yeah it's the shit is happening every day (laughs) exactly so he obviously got an idea in his head Because very shortly after that, during the first week of June 2006, Darren sat down and he wrote a to-do list. The first few items were pretty innocuous. The first item referred to Darren's high school friend, Dan Osborne. Now, Dan was a, a really good friend of his who had just recently gone through a divorce himself. And he moved in to Darren's condo with him during this divorce. And he was actually just about in the process of moving into his own place. So it was kind of like they had had a bachelor pad together while they were going through this Similar experience. And so this first to-do item was about asking Dan if he could bring Erica, his daughter, over to his mom's house like the next morning, which Dan had no problem doing. So it read, Dan, take Erica to Joan. And then there was some other more like everyday types of things on this note. But then there was also a list of serious military equipment and guns and ammunition. Also chillingly, Darren wrote at one point, end problem. On his to-do list that They still have that someone found. Oh, yeah, they found it. End problem. On Monday, June 12th, 2006, Charlotte drove over to Darren's apartment to drop off Erica for Darren's custody. Now, she was not feeling comfortable with this, but school was out and there was very little she could do about the situation. And in fact, she had moved into her own apartment after getting money from friends and family. And she had not wanted to disclose her address to Darren. But, well, he knew it anyway because the judge said, a man, a woman, any parent deserves to know the address of their child. You can't, like, take your kid to an undisclosed location. Unless, like, you're terrified of your partner. Well, they still had the restraining order. So the thing was is that they were not supposed to get out of the car. So if Darren came to drop off Erica, he could not leave his car. If Charlotte came to drop off Erica, she could not leave her car. But she did tell a friend that Darren said that he had something for her. There's some reason that she needed to, like, get out of the car, but he was going to be fine. He was saying he was fine, but she was really nervous about it, obviously, because they weren't having a great relationship. And her friend was just like, well, then just don't get out of the car. That's, like, the thing. You say, bye, honey, I love you. Bye to Erica. And you say, sorry, Darren, I got to go. You just don't get out of the car. 
Well, unfortunately, she did get out of the car that day. Dan Osborne was outside with Darren when Sharla arrived and she got out of the car. She said hi to him. She was very pleasant. And then Darren said, well, can you take Erica upstairs? And so he took their child upstairs to go watch some cartoons, I believe. And he said that Sharla went into the garage with Darren, the garage at their condo. And it's believed that Darren may have said that there was something in the garage that she had to take for Erica or for herself or something. That's what we believe how he got her into the garage. Okay, okay. And she had said to Dan Osborne that she said hi to him and she said she needed to pick up something for Sharla. So that would make the most sense of how he got her in the garage. In any case, two Max went into that garage and only one came out. Whoa. Roughly two and a half hours later, Judge Chuck Weller was in his office. He had just returned from a vacation. It was a Monday and he had disrobed. Just it's like the judge's robes, like he was clothed, obviously. Yeah. And he was speaking with his administrative assistant while he was straightening this bookshelf that he had in his office that was in front of a window. When suddenly he heard a loud popping noise, he saw a flash of light and everything began to just move slowly. It took him and his administrative assistant almost ages or it felt like ages to realize that he was bleeding. And his assistant at the time thought that because then he started shouting and she thought he was overreacting because she thought a light bulb had blown somewhere because it was just so bizarre. But it turned out that Judge Weller had been struck in the chest by a sniper's bullet. What? More than once it would turn out, although he did not know how many times at the time. As his assistant ran for help, he fell to the ground and what might well be his last moments, he screamed to his assistant to call his family to tell them to get out of the house. Like that's the type of guy is he's thinking about his family and if they managed to get him in his office that they could find his family at their home to make sure he's like, get them to the airport, get them to wherever. Well, he managed to remain conscious as the SWAT team closed down the whole area and paramedics started attending to him. It turned out to be two gunshot wounds to the chest. He was losing an incredible amount of blood at this point. So they are rushing him to the emergency room. And while they're doing this, they're thinking this might be our last chance to figure out who his enemies are. Yeah. And they asked if there was any contentious cases or anyone he could think of off the top of his head who wished him harm. And of course, he's totally in and out of it. And he says, Daryl Mack. He was out of it, but he was, he remembered Mac. He just said Daryl instead of Darren. And then he passed out on his way into surgery. So as soon as the judge's shooting was broadcast on the news, the police received another call concerning Darren Mac. And this one was from Dan Osborne. He said that he knew that Darren had hated Judge Weller and that he was now very afraid and had been afraid that Darren had hurt or killed his wife, Sharla. And then after doing so, had gone on to seek revenge on Judge Weller. Wow. Uh-huh. His friend and confidant. Yes. Dan said that he had gone upstairs with little Erica and he had heard his dog, who was, it sounded like a pit bull mix, making a huge commotion outside. And a little while later, his dog flew up the stairs to the condo and the dog was covered with blood. So Darren at that point, Shortly after the dog came up, and of course, Erica's freaking out because the dog's barking, the dog has blood on it. 
Darren came into the apartment and he said that his head was down. He wasn't looking at them and he had his hand wrapped and it looked like it was bleeding. So it looked like he had some sort of hand injury that he had a rag or something around. Oh my God. And he said that he then basically didn't say anything to them and like left again. And also Dan was freaked out at this point and Eric was freaked out. So he's like, I'm just going to get her in the car and take her to her grandmother's. Like I just have to get her out of the situation. So he got her in the car and he started taking- Thank God for him. Yeah. This whole thing is like, he doesn't know what's going on. He's freaked out. So he's taking her to her grandmother's when Darren calls him and says, I'm at this Starbucks. I'm in public. I want to see my daughter one more time. Can you bring her to me? And he's like, okay. I mean, I think he was just like, didn't know what to do. And she wanted to see her dad. So he brings her to this Starbucks And he went in to buy like a lemon bar for Erica and like something for himself and went in. And when he came out, Darren was essentially like saying, please remember me. I love you no matter what or whatever. And he takes off. And so then Dan takes Erica to Jones and is like, I think Darren did something really, really bad. And he left and he called 911. But it wasn't clear where he had been transferred to or what had happened or why maybe it wasn't taken seriously for whatever reason until everyone found out about Judge Weller, it it didn't seem like they were connecting the dots. Mm -hmm. So he'd called back after and he was like, hey, that on TV, I think that's my buddy. Oh my goodness. I've officially bitten off two of my nails. (laughs) This is a nail biter. Yeah. (gasps) It It is literally a nail biter now. Well, the police rushed to Darren's apartment and they forced open the garage and they were hoping beyond hope that Charlotte was there. She just needed medical attention. So they had the paramedics ready and everyone ready to go. But tragically, there was no life left to save. Charlotte had been viciously stabbed and slashed to death with a knife. What? Darren had cut her throat so deeply that he had nearly decapitated her. Whoa. So, of course, now, a manhunt was on. I mean, he tried to snipe a judge. And right now, they don't know if Judge Weller is going to pull through. His wife, who he was in a contentious divorce with, is viciously, brutally murdered in his home. Could you imagine being that Walter Wankelbab, whatever his name was? Uh, The guy on the show who said, oh, you should just kill him and say that you were insane. Like, are you an accomplice now? I mean, I would be concerned if I were that guy. I'd be concerned for a lot of reasons if I was that guy. (laughs) So the Reno airport was closed, as were a lot of the major roads But Darren Mack had had a head start. It was 4 p.m. by the time they closed everything down. And Darren had slipped out of town in a rented Ford Explorer at 2.30 p.m. By midnight, he had crossed the border at San Diego into Tijuana (gasps) with no problems for border control. He had no issue getting through. So he's in Mexico. He abandoned the rented Ford Explorer, and he took a 20-hour bus ride to the Baja Peninsula where he went to a five-star resort that was reportedly, now this was something that the prosecutor says later, a swingers establishment as well. Shut up. Shut up. 
I mean, that should have been like easy to track them. They could have just been like swinger <laughs> locations swing? in Baja, California. Where are luxury swingers resorts? Let's go there. Well, he had $40,000 in cash on him. So right now, he's all over the news. I mean, it was picked up by everyone. He was on America's Most Wanted. And he was literally on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list at this point. So there wasn't an American news organization that was not reporting this nationally. And if you're saying it as swingers, I mean, I told you that I looked up the price of hedonism too. It's $1,143 a night. So the swinger hotel in Baja, California can't be that much less. So that's only going to get you like a month. <laughs> I like that you know exactly how much it costs. It costs a lot of money to swing, eh? Well, he realized pretty early on that his plan was flawed. Because also, he didn't speak any Spanish. Wait, his plan to murder two people was flawed? Well, I meant mostly the escape plan, but uh, murder plans are always flawed because, again... Yeah, and if you're going to flee to Mexico, I think you need to have a little bit of Espanol under your You got to have some Espanol. Yeah. So it's not like he can go somewhere more rural or off the beaten path and fit into a village that maybe won't be checking CNN or whatever. No, he's at all-inclusive nude resort. Yeah, which, of course, they cater to an American or English-speaking clientele. So they're going to have all of the channels that the Americans want to check out. So they're all going to know that they're staying in this hotel and they're going to recognize him. And he's a very specific looking man. He's well built, big guy, six foot tall. People keep saying that he was handsome, but I think he kind of looks like beefy Kevin Nealon. <laughs> I don't know. He doesn't strike me as super duper handsome, but he's very specific looking. I mean, he's a tall, dark, very well muscled dude. He's not going to just like blend in, disappear into the night. Exactly. And so he's like, okay, this might have been a mistake. He ended up taking a $150 taxi to somewhere else, like another hotel. He's trying to figure out where he's going to go. He's realizing that there's very little chance, given how much attention there is on this case, that he's just going to be able to, like you said, melt into the night. Well, I have some good news. They catch him? Yes, they do. Number one, they will. We'll get to there. And the judge is alive. Number two, Judge Weller survived. That's badass. Oh, he's amazing. Really, truly, honestly. He had miraculously survived a grueling surgery. He had over 40 stitches. Wow. I mean, they have a picture of him recovering from this surgery. I mean, they had to open him up. He had a very, 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 very long road to recovery. But still, he was like, I believe in the justice system. He didn't even like really say like throw the book at this guy. He was just like, I hope he's apprehended and he experiences the justice system that is exemplary in the United States. Like he was just like, he said privately later, he was of course scared for his family, the fact that Darren Mack was still out there, but he was unbelievably brave. So Darren emailed the authorities, which is honestly kind of funny because he kind of, he pretended it was from a friend. He was like, I'm friends with Darren Mack, <laughs> like asking for a friend. And it's like from Darren Mack at Gmail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at yahoo.com. He said he would turn himself in. I'll tell you where I'm at. 
I'll turn myself in, but I have conditions of my surrender. He said that he had acted in self-defense in killing Sharla, his 120-pound tiny wife, and this guy again, bodybuilder, and that he did know, he was aware that even though he had acted in self-defense, he needed to pay the price for her death, and he did want the death penalty. He said the death penalty is just fine for me. And he also claimed, this is all from his surrender conditions email, (laughs) which is amazing. He also said, on another note, if I would have wanted Weller dead, he would have been. I wanted him alive to have his corruption exposed and to get out what is really coming to him, as well as the criminal Sean Medor, who was Sharla's divorce attorney. Sorry, babe. No, you've just got a bad shot. He also demanded the following. He said, I want to see my family and children if they will see me. Wait, I thought this was coming from a friend. Was it like initially from a friend and then it like... It was initially from a friend and then it switched to, this is what I want. (laughs) Since I am stipulating to the death penalty, I want it done in one year so that I have time to have the truth of what has happened to me and others told. So now he's going to be a martyr for the anti-family court cause, I guess. And still he has his landmark philosophies of setting goals. (laughs) Yes, and thinking he can dictate this situation. (laughs) I want a private cell until my execution. I want access to a computer, printer, and internet, along with being able to see a writer regularly. Writer? A writer, because he obviously has to tell his life story before he's executed. For his autobiography. Yes. I want no prison, and in exchange, I will not play the game and appeal, etc. A deal is a deal? So... He says he wants a private cell, and then he says he wants no prison until they execute him. And then he said, I want your word that you will support the truth getting exposed. Nothing more and nothing less. (laughs) So he is still... Truth-seeking. Truth-seeking. There's the word. Yep. He's still truth-seeking. So the FBI was like, sure, yeah, whatever you want, Betty, just tell us where you are so we can come get you. And Darren was eventually apprehended poolside at a resort in Puerto Vallarta. You are lying. Where? Literally poolside. Where? I don't know which resort it was. I can find out, though. Well, I'll look it up later. Poolside? Yeah, he was poolside. He's chilling. I mean, he had made a deal with them that he was going to be at that specific resort when he turned himself in. So they knew he was going to be there. It wasn't like he was just like hanging out there and they found him and got him. He said, I'm going to be at this specific resort. And I guess he turned up a little early and like wandered out to the pool. And that's when they got him. Wow. Yeah. So they extradited his ass back to Reno. And when he was there, of course, nobody was agreeing to any of these conditions. And astoundingly, Darren pled not guilty to both counts of murder and attempted murder. What? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what he was thinking about his defense. I mean, we'll get into that because it's something else. The not guilty is surprising. Well, this case was huge. So there was a couple things going on here. This case is obviously big. And then I guess there was some sort of relationship Darren had with, I think, one of the prosecutors. There was some sort of member of the court system that he had some sort of relationship with. So that sexual relationship? No, 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 no. Like the friendship or something. I don't know if he had contributed to his campaign or I don't know exactly what it was. So there was some relationship that was sticky. But then moreover, they were saying that we have to move this case out of Reno because of the publicity, but also because he killed or tried to kill rather. He attempted to kill 
a Reno judge. So all of these judges are essentially his coworkers in some capacity. How are you going to have a fair trial? Was which was essentially what his attorneys are arguing. Yeah, but do you get a fair trial if you try to assassinate a fucking judge? I don't know. He did, though. They moved the trial to Las Vegas, and it cost the taxpayers $100,000 just to move the trial. That also meant that it was tried in Vegas with Vegas prosecutors and officials, not the people wow. you know, that were investigating and directly involved with the murder in the county. Yeah. So the trial began in late October of 2007. The prosecutor argued that an enraged Darren Mack murdered his wife and took bloody revenge on the family judge that he had felt had wronged him. And then he fucked off to a swingers resort in Mexico. Yep. (laughs) Pretty much. That about sums it up. That sums it up. I mean, there's also just all of this evidence of him being online, him going on that web series, speaking out about Judge Weller. I mean, there's witnesses upon witnesses. There is also physical evidence in his apartment, in his garage, in his Lexus. Anything you could imagine that you wanted for physical evidence and circumstantial evidence, it was there in troves. Darren's defense was absolutely insulting. His attorneys argued that Charlotte was a physically abusive monster who suffered from borderline personality disorder as a result of her dysfunctional childhood. Darren's attorneys went so far as to argue that Darren had been a happy, upstanding, monogamous family man No, before Sharla came along with her sick perversions, her taste for women and group sex, and forced him into swinging. Okay. Yeah. Darren claimed that Sharla had pulled a gun on him in the garage that day. A gun, by the way, that would never be located. Well, Darren claimed it's because he had disposed of it in a dumpster with the knife, but I would offer that it was never found because it never existed, and that he had instinctively fought back with a knife that he carried on his person to save his own life. Then his attorneys claimed he suffered a psychiatric break as a result of the life-or-death struggle And this break created the delusion that the Second Amendment gave him the right to shoot the judge who he believed was extorting him. Whoa. I mean, these guys should write, like, fantasy. They should write fiction because this is extraordinary. In his opening statement, one of his lawyers even went so far to suggest that Darren delusionally believed that Sharla was sleeping with the judge, but then he said, well, maybe that wasn't a delusion. Like suggesting that, I hope that didn't happen, but that could have been true as well. Kind of like offering like a weird little moment where he suggested maybe Sharla was sleeping with the judge. Yeah, but also like that doesn't justify you trying to kill the judge and killing her. No, he's just trying to make her look bad, too. And then my favorite part was when he suggested that the party drugs that Sharla had forced on Darren during their sex romps had contributed to his mind-breaking delusions. So this guy, I'm going to read you a quote. This is from his opening statement, and it references maybe one of the greatest television ads of all time. He said in his opening statement, Remember that commercial with the frying pan? First, they showed you, this is your brain. Then they said, 
this is your brain on drugs. And they showed the sunny egg. <laughs> this is how he said it too. This is a direct quote. This is the sunnied up egg crackling. That's what happened here. Okay. So you're going to go with the this is your brain on drugs defense? So strange. So strange. This trial was not going so great for Darren. I mean, especially when brave Judge Weller got on the stand and he was just total solid gem. So Darren, of course, it's the, the trial's wrapping up and they have the opportunity to put him on the stand, of course. And of course, this guy wants a soapbox. So he wants to get on the stand and testify in his own defense. So they said, well, of course, you would be open to cross-examination then. So if you want to get on the stand, then let's do a run-through. Let's run through what we would say in direct, and then let's run through what we think they would ask you in cross just to make sure you're prepared and make sure that your answers are going to look good for our defense so far. Yeah. And what they heard absolutely sickened them. According to John Glatt's book, which, by the way, is called Love Her to Death, Darren became unusually candid about what had happened inside the garage that morning. For the very first time to his attorneys, he graphically described placing his knee on Charlotte's head after he had finished stabbing her and she was gurgling and choking to death. I got physically ill, recalled one of his attorneys, because it was the first time he had told me that. Oh no, his poor attorneys. They're like... Oh my God, we can't put this monster on the stand. After hearing this gruesome description of just how Sharla had died, his attorneys became truly concerned about how this would play to a jury. It was a very graphic presentation by Mr. Mack, which I felt did not inure to his benefit in claiming self-defense in light of never calling the police, running away, and throwing away the evidence. The particular cross-examination, said the other attorney, involved a very detailed and graphic description of the stabbing of his ex-wife. What was particularly striking and graphic about it was the depiction of Mr. Mack's knee upon his dying wife's head while the blood was spurting out of her neck. Oh, my God. Oh. This was something that did not fit into self-defense as I understood it. I remember using the words, not well received by a jury. So they said, absolutely not. And this is a losing case. And they felt sick to their stomachs. I mean, Darren Mack was quite literally indefensible. Yeah. His attorneys convinced him to take a plea deal at that point. They said, if a jury hears you say this, they're going to send you away for life. So let's roll the dice with a plea deal and see what we can get. And while the judge would ultimately have the freedom to decide Darren's sentence, the prosecution did tentatively agree to life in prison with parole available after 20 years in exchange for a guilty plea. On November 5th, 2007, Darren pled guilty, admitting in court that he had knowingly, willingly killed Sharla with premeditation. For the assassination attempt on Judge Weller, he entered an Alford plea, which we've talked about, which means he recognized that there was enough evidence to convict him, but he did not actually admit to the attempted murder. Darren, of course, being the bitch ass that he did after he submitted this plea, tried to withdraw his plea and he fired his attorneys and he claimed that he had been coerced by them into the plea deal that he did not want to take. That tracks too. It's just total Darren. He filed a complaint with his new attorneys and a hearing was held and the judge basically said tough noogies. He said they did their job as best they could. Off to jail you go. 
Okay, so this is incredible things that Darren said, part two. During this hearing to see whether he was allowed to get a new trial or his attorneys had derelicted their duty in coercing him to take this plea deal, Darren compared himself to a woman who had experienced rape. Oh, my God. He said in court that his attorneys had preyed upon him when he was weak from dehydration, insomnia, and he had been eating very poorly. He said, quote, it was like a psychological rape. I mean, I have a whole new relationship to compassion for women who are raped. It's not just the sex that's taken from them. It's their will. And that is like one of the most horrifying things to have your will taken from you. I hate him so much, so much. Well, the judge ultimately decided to give Darren just a little bit more time than his plea deal. He was sentenced to life in prison, but he would not be eligible for parole for 36 years, meaning he will not be eligible to get out of prison until he is 83 years old. Darren has appealed unsuccessfully, and it looks like he will probably most likely spend his entire life behind bars, or at least a big, big portion of it. Many of Darren's friends and family still support him. His now adult son, Jory, maintains that his father killed his stepmother in self-defense. Really? Yep. Oh, yeah. A lot of people think this. And obviously, guys, we don't get into any victim shaming here, but there were witnesses that said that she was physically aggressive with him. So I don't know if you're a, an impressionable kid and you see your stepmother strike your father, maybe that claim of self-defense sounds more legitimate to you. Of course. I mean, could you imagine seeing that when you're a kid at all? Like, you shouldn't have to see any violence like that ever. No, absolutely not. Amongst adults, like, that's not... Yeah, and people pointed out, I ended up on some, like, true crime forum where people were pointing out that the episode of American Monster that I watched was a little victim-shamey because there were supporters of Darren on talking about her being aggressive and they felt like it was inappropriate. I think that we have to make sure that we never ever shame the victim for choices they made because no one deserves to be victimized. No one deserves to be murdered, point blank. Well, and they don't get to have their own voice after they're gone. And that's the most important thing, Andy. They don't get to have their say yeah. in this. But there's a lot of people that really believe what Darren has to say and they support him and I guess there's people that really enjoy his presence in prison. Erica, another true victim in all of this, was raised by both of her grandmothers who did share custody, which I think is good. It's very powerful because we've seen so many cases where the families end up victimizing the children again because they go through terrible custody battles. And she has turned out to be a very successful young woman from what I saw on the internet. So, Oh, that makes me happy. Good for her. And as for Judge Chuck Weller, my goodness, this man, he is just the goat. In a Reno Gazette Journal article from May 2018, Judge Weller spoke to journalist Seth Richardson. Judge Weller continued to work as a family judge, and he never let the assassination attempt hinder his calling and his commitment to the families he served. Wow. In fact, he doubled down. He decided to go back to school, and he studied domestic violence and court security extensively. 
He received a master's degree in judicial studies writing about domestic violence and a doctorate in judicial studies writing about court security. He said, I wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand what happened and put it into context. That's the reason I started to study more about domestic violence, because in my mind, this was clearly an act of domestic violence. And I wanted to also learn about court security. And I find what happened to me was typical of court security incidents. Wow. Now I would recognize the warning signs. I'd have a much better chance today to see this coming than I had then. I'd been on the bench for a year and a half then. I had no training in court security then. It's my hope that what I'm doing at the Judicial College is helping to prevent similar things from happening in other courts by advising new judges what the warning signs are. Wow. How incredible and selfless to turn incredibly traumatic experience into something that can help other people. No, it's remarkable. So that's it, Andy. That is the terrible case of the villain, Darren Mack, and his poor deceased ex-wife, Sharla. Well, that is horrifying. But I do have some screenshots that I snapped of reviews from... Oh, from Hedonism 2? Hedonism 2. I am so glad you were the one who took the lead with this. And I am very delighted to hear about the Yelp reviews of the Hedonism 2. I do just want to let everyone know that, like, it is $1,143 a night. You've mentioned that once already. So the majority of the reviews are 5 out of 5. I was like, wait, they're even higher than Yelp has stars for? 5.5 like, out of 5. Yeah, no, so they're not on Yelp. The Google reviews were so good that I had to go to TripAdvisor to find a bad one. <laughs> My husband and I love coming home here. We've met many couples returning year after year. We're on our fourth visit currently. Damn, these are some rich swingers then, if they can afford those $1,140. Well, they said, we aren't swinging, but it doesn't matter. The pure energy at Hedo's is electrifying for any couple or person. All the amenities of a great inclusive resort, plus you get to be naked. <laughs> Hedonism has a clothing optional side, but why? Have fun, love, and make new friends. I mean, a pina colada always tastes better with your penis out, obviously. For an example, another five out of five review. What an amazing experience and still here now as I write this review. Myself and my wife have always wanted to go to hedonism too. And as we are a very sexually active couple who have always been very open and keen to experience the hedonism way of holidays and only booking this two week on a brave decision between the both of us before we actually left for the break. And it's been the best decision of our life. Okay, so this whole review is one sentence. Oh, he's so excited that he can't even take time for punctuation. Totally sexually satisfaction with everything we have ever fantasized about and more. We will be coming back for years to come. 100% recommend if you want sex, sex, sex. <laughs> oh, boy. So that, that was all one sentence just with some ellipses between. I have two negative reviews for you. Negative reviewers. One is titled, one, it's one out of five stars, Hito Me Not. This was my seventh trip to Hito, so it took seven trips for them to get this one-star review. I'm sad to say it will likely be my last. My room was moldy, ant-filled, and ran down. The food was equivalent to high school cafeteria quality. It was flat out bad. The chlorine was toxic, and the nude pool was causing severe eye irritation, skin irritations, and nausea, which I cannot imagine would be good for your private parts. 
I mean, I feel like, though, if all these people are, like, banging in the pool, you got to keep the chlorine level pretty high. Absolutely. (laughs) Comes with the territory. Territory. (laughs) It also burned my jewelry. The staff are usually friendly and engaging, but this year they seem to cater to certain... Well, I'm not going to say that part. Uh, Furthermore, the rate increases for 2023 are ridiculous and dated for a ran-down resort. Well, it sounds like somebody didn't get laid that trip. Someone didn't get laid and someone didn't go to grammar school. Second review, (laughs) I don't know where this goes, but this is essentially a review that it went from bad to worse. And he said, where to start? The good. Number one, now they have onion rings at the nude beach grill and they're quite good. (laughs) The rest of the food is status quo. Number two for the good is the first trip in, I don't know how many years ago, that creep Harry Lang wasn't present on the resort. We actually got to enjoy ourselves without him horning in and cock blocking his paying guests. Oh, man. And then he goes on for all the bad reviews. The nude pool was way too hot. The watering stations were a nice try, but they were inconvenient. Everyone running around with cell phones in their hands, even though there were supposed to be no photos. Having to pay for return trip COVID testing, which sounds pretty ludicrous if you're spending $1,000 a night, to be honest. The food caused heartburn. Every cocktail was too sweet or overrun with liquor that it was undrinkable. Uh, He's complaining that the drinks are too strong, that there's too much liquor? (laughs) Yeah, either too sweet or too strong. And they didn't have refrigerators in the room. I don't know. It just, it seems like people who were going there are currently in 2023 disappointed with the post-COVID resort. You got to take that money and make some upgrades, babies. Apparently, also, there was one review that said that All the males helped pay for drinking games with the female guests standing behind them pouring drinks down their breasts while their husbands and boyfriends got upset. That seems like part of the territory at a swingers resort. I think some people don't know. (laughs) It seems like some people don't know. In conclusion, how about we don't make ultimatums for our pregnant partners, especially at eight and a half months? Yeah, I think that would be good. Also, if you're planning on running away to Mexico just on your own, you know, just for a vacation, you should probably habla espanol. I mean, especially if you're going to be living there and starting a new fugitive life. Un poquito. Yes. Well, as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. And for the love of goodness, move your own boxes of porn, Andrea. (laughs) I love you. See you later. Bye. Bye. 